Our text this morning comes from James chapter 4. At least the text that we're going to collect our thoughts around. We'll be flipping around a little bit. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? (laughs) There's a good question. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, this is countercultural advice in a world that tells us we're never going to get anywhere unless we assert ourselves and dominate other people around us and make sure that we own our space. And uh, there is an appropriate sense in which we have a space that we are to care for. But Father, we're too prone to push our space outward into other people's spaces. And we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need insight and clear vision as to what it is that's going on. We ask that you would give us this this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, um, my plan at this point is to spend a few more Sundays finishing up our survey of the most important steps to begin transforming the whole person into the image of Christ. And this, since uh, basically Ash Wednesday, has just been an introduction. It is nothing like a complete overview uh, because there are other parts of you that need to be transformed besides your heart and your mind. For instance, your body desperately needs to be re-educated, particularly in those areas where you have trained your body to be poised to do evil before you can think. And if you're prone to anger or lust or gluttony, for instance, you have experienced how your body will be bringing you into sin before your mind says, well, hold on, are we sure that we want to do this or not? And your social relationships need to be transformed. And God accomplishes a lot of that by transforming you. We always want God to transform the other person because we think that really if there's a problem in a relationship, most of the problem is with that other person. And if they would just straighten up and fly right, I'd be fine. And that might even be to one degree or another true, 
But God can change you in such a way that it eventually changes both you and the other person in a way that pleases Him and glorifies Him. And of course, we're not always aware of how much we ourselves contribute to the problems as well. It's easy to get locked into a way of thinking that just blinds you to certain aspects of reality. And that's part of that defective mental map of reality that I mentioned, the syndrome of defective mental map. And when it comes to the transforming of the heart and of the mind, we haven't really gone into very much detail there yet either, and we probably won't. We'll go into a little bit more today. But I've given you in these series of sermons the key to the castle gate. You have enough basic information that if you want to learn, you have what you need to walk in and wander around and begin learning your way around. And God Himself has promised that He will help you because He wants you to take this journey with Him. But today we're going to spend, because it's really important for you to understand, you know, I, I, my mind is such that um, it thinks in systems and in interacting parts. And so, for instance, uh, you know, I can take almost any motor that's ever been built. Can you do this too, Dean? Well, you can take a motor and you know exactly where everything's supposed to go and you can look at it and go, okay, there's a flathead V8 and the valves have to be here. Can you do that? Some, yeah, okay. So I can do that too, you know? And, 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 and when I envision things, I see the whole thing like an exploded diagram and I see how all the parts interact. And it's, it's, it's great to look at one part and go, okay, this is this part, this is a valve, this is a piston, this is a, a head, this is an intake manifold. But to understand how all those things then come together and function as a dynamic whole is what will turn you into a mechanic rather than a parts guy, okay? And so what we want you to be is a mechanic of yourself. We want you to understand how all the parts work and interact. And in order to do that, I'm going to do quite a bit of review today, and then at the end, I'm going to stick in this last concept, and hopefully you'll then see how all your parts work together when you're doing right, and when, particularly when Satan is tempting you and assaulting you, and when you are about ready to do something wrong, okay? So bear with me, and I, it was so important to me, I went and created an outline, and you have it in paper, and uh, that way you can refer to it if you want, but uh, there it is, okay? So let's do a quick review. When we started back on Ash Wednesday by taking a few sessions together to introduce the idea of death to self or the settled habit of self-denial, we said that this really amounts to making your peace with the idea that it's okay that you don't get your own way. So when we say it's time to die to self, we're not saying you don't have a will. We're not saying you don't have opinions. We're not saying you might not even try to get your own way. We're saying that if you don't, it's not a disaster. You aren't somehow mortally wounded. And you are to be able to get to the point where you aren't even particularly perturbed by the fact that you didn't get your own way. Let's just say, uh, for instance, that uh, it's after dinner and, uh, and you decide as a family you want to go out together and, and go to Handel's and get ice cream. And, uh, and so you say, hey, everybody, I have a great idea. Let's go out to Handel's and get ice cream. 
And nobody else wants to do that because they're on a diet, because they ate too much Easter ham or whatever. And, and so, so the proper, appropriate reaction would be, well, I guess I could go get ice cream by myself, no big deal. Or it would be, well, I, I don't need ice cream, that's fine. But if you got mad and pitched a fit because nobody else would come with you to Handles to get ice cream, you've got an ice cream problem. It's, it's an inordinate desire in you somehow, or some other problem like needing to control your family and stuff ice cream in their face. Well, how are you liking that? Are you happy now, huh? No. You recognize that it's just, if you did that, it would be weird. Well, almost everything you do that's along those lines on another subject is inappropriate, it's inordinate, and it's weird. But because everybody's doing it, we think it's normal, and we think it's okay. So it, it, it means that you don't get perturbed when you don't have your way. It doesn't mean you don't have a will or an opinion. It doesn't mean you don't advocate for your will or your opinion. And if your opinion or your will prevails, that's fine. It does mean that you don't manipulate other people to get your way using pity or anger or guilt or money or threats or influence with some third party or any of the other sinful, dirty tricks that people use to get their own way when they can't get it by a good and godly means. But if you choose to express your will or pursue your will, and it doesn't work out, you go, well, that's okay. I'm at peace. And you're at peace because you've stopped trying to be God. And you've decided that God can be trusted to be God and to take care of you better than you can take care of you. And so you've surrendered your will to God on an ongoing basis. Incidentally, I very often counsel with people who feel themselves to be in some way dependent on another person for their well-being in the world. And maybe it's a wife who feels dependent on her husband or vice versa, and that could be materially or relationally or emotionally. It could be that you're in need of physical care, and this is the only person that provides it to you. Maybe it's a child who is or was dependent on a parent who didn't provide some key thing. Often it's an emotional and developmental thing, which is normally associated with healthy development, like what happens in an, a, an abusive environment. Maybe the situation is that the parent is in the parent, uh, or I'm sorry, is in the present. Maybe it's in the past, uh, but you're feeling the effects of it today. And, and maybe it's also feeling fear about what might come in the future. And as a result of this, you're suffering. You're suffering anxiety and you're suffering fear, and very often you're suffering anger along with it. And you lash out at the person who you think is failing you, and that really only makes things worse. And I got to tell you, all that will start to go away the minute you decide to lay down your will as the primary thing in your life, to lay down your desire to get your own way and just let God be God. All that will cease the moment you entrust yourself to his care and ask him to help you. And if you ask him to help you with that, he will, because he's promised to. You see, you're not God, and the other person might very well be failing you. 
They might be depriving you of what you, humanly speaking, need from them, and which God even says in His Word, they're supposed to provide for you. But that person isn't God either. And they don't have the ability to short-circuit God's power in your life. You're the only one that has the ability to short-circuit God's power in your life. And if you'll just unknot your heart and learn how to place yourself in God's care, you will find that those feelings of anxiety and anger just drop right off of you, and you'll be at rest, and you'll be at peace. You see, what you're doing in that case is acting like a situational atheist. God and His power don't exist there in those places, so far as you're really concerned. Now, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd invite you to turn there if you'd like, 1 Peter chapter 3. And he talks about it specifically in a situation of wives and husbands, where wives and husbands are concerned. And the husbands, let's just read that together. This is one of these verses that's a landmine these days, but oh well. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person, the word person is important, it's not the hidden woman, it's the hidden person, of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, so let's, let's sum that up a little bit. The husband, he's, he's not fulfilling his duties. He's not obedient to the Word, says Peter. We're not told if he's saved or he's not saved, and it really doesn't matter in this particular concept. He's not doing what he should do. And Peter says that the wife can and should have a gentle, quiet spirit that isn't afraid precisely because the person that she hopes in is not her husband, but God. And God's in charge of her husband, just like God's in charge of her. Now, in that time and place, the wife was far more dependent on her husband and far more vulnerable than she is today. And Peter tells us that the Lord highly, highly values a person, not a woman, a person who can dwell quietly in a situation that seems precarious And they're dwelling quietly because of his or her confidence in God. And so, in this particular case with the wife and the husband who's falling down on the job, she's not even angry or disrespectful towards him because she doesn't feel any need or any desire to be that way. She's just at at peace. She's just trusting God. Now, a lot of people read that passage as though it only has things to say to wives. And usually the wife and her friends don't like that advice very much. But Peter is simply making a specific situational application of a general spiritual law. 
And it's the same law that kept Daniel at peace in the lion's den. It kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at peace in the fiery furnace. And it kept David at peace when he fled from Saul and had opportunity to take revenge and murder Saul more than once and refused to do it, but commended himself to God's care and said, God can deal with Saul. David doesn't need to deal with Saul. And what is that principle? Well, it is this. The person, male or female, who can dwell in a frightening situation without fearing because of their confidence in the Lord is at, and they're therefore at inner rest with a gentle and a quiet spirit will find that God takes special care of them. That they, they get this exquisite extra care precisely because of the gentle and quiet spirit. Because God is just crazy happy when he sees a gentle and quiet spirit in his children. He loves it. And he loves it in a man and he loves it in a woman. And if you want to just see that he loves it in a man, go look at all the scriptures where it's addressed to Christians in, gen in general. For instance, let your gentleness be made apparent to all, Paul says. Now, I hope that little rabbit trail might have helped somebody who's struggling today, but let's go back to the main point. So we die to self, or we put into place the habit of self-denial, which is letting go of our need to get our own way, and we let God worry about all of the outcomes, and then when we've made some progress on that path, we are ready for the next step. And the next step, fundamentally, is to let God be God over our minds. The first one, whether we didn't specifically say it, explicitly say it, the first one really starts with a blow at the, the rebellious will. And once you've sort of dealt that blow to the will and you've disciplined the will a little bit in this one area, God then is able to move on to the next area. And the next step is to let God be God over your mind. It's to be transformed. It's to allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans 12, 2. And, and two weeks ago, we talked about what a renewed mind looks like. And a renewed mind is, first of all, one in which our faulty, sin-damaged, Satan-blinded mental map of reality is replaced by what the Scriptures call in 1 Corinthians 2, 15, the mind of Christ. Now, that does not mean that you have all the access to all the information and knowledge that Christ has. That's not what that means. It does not mean you get a brain transplant and Christ's brain is put into your head. No. What that means is we have the power by the Holy Spirit and through the Scriptures to access the mental map of reality that the incarnated Jesus had when He walked the earth. And we said before that this is the crucial battle in the Christian life, and it will be a lifelong, ongoing battle, but it will get, you will get victory. It will get easier as you progress. Your primary battle is actually not with the things you think it is. It's not with lust. It's not with anxiety. It's not with anger or whatever is dominating your life. Not really. Your battle is with a mental map of reality that makes lust or anxiety or anger seem like an appropriate way to manage your life. Your mental map of reality says, it only makes sense for me to be angry right now because all these things are happening and your mental map of reality is wrong. 
And once your mental map of reality gets corrected, you very quickly begin to see how stupid, how counterproductive, and how just generally destructive a life of anger, for instance, or a life of fear, or a life of sensuality is. And it becomes much easier just to let those things go and find a better way to live because they no longer make sense once your mental map of reality has been corrected. Now, hopefully you see now why death to self has to be put into place first, because human beings apart from God are heavily, heavily invested in their defective mental maps of reality. They craft their whole lives around lies, and it costs a lot to let go and to adopt a different way of thinking and a different way of seeing the world. Just think, just as an exercise among secular men, let's just take Christ out of, the, out, of the, uh, out of the equation here for a minute and just think about secular men. Just think about what it, would be, what it would take and what it would be like if, for instance, the CEO of Exxon suddenly resigned and publicly admitted that Exxon had been lying and suppressing the truth about climate change and that their own internal work by their own scientists supported at least some of the models And he said, we were doing this knowingly. And then he liquidated all of his wealth and he gave the money to various environmental groups and then he spent the rest of his life in poverty as a climate activist with some group like Extinction Rebellion or Earth First or some other radical group. So he went from CEO of Exxon to broke guy working for an environmental group. In a single moment, the minute he made that decision, He would lose everything. And he would lose everything that he had spent his whole life building and building quite successfully. He would lose friends. He would probably be sued by multiple powerful corporations and individuals who would be absolutely enraged at him for betraying them. His family would probably suffer. In other words, he who was exalted in the business community's eyes would be cast down, would be humbled, and would be brutally hated. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not taking a position on any of those issues in the socio-scientific thing. I'm just saying, just imagine, I'm highly committed to one model, make money, make money off of oil, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make money off of oil, and then to turn around and say, I repent of all my oil, basically. It's, I think it's the wrong thing to do now, and I'm going to rearrange my life. And that would be enormously costly. We can see that from a secular perspective. Well, it's even worse. It's even more profound in a spiritual mind change. Admitting that your mental map of reality is faulty and that you have actually spent a lot of time and money and energy arranging your life around the wrong goals is often a wrenching and painful and costly experience. It alienates a lot of friends and a lot of allies. This is why Jesus said that the enemies you gain by coming to him will even be found in your own family, in your own household. And to endure that, you have to have a pretty solid commitment to death to self and to letting go and letting God be God. You know, one of the most interesting modern biographies I have ever read is by a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. You should read it. Um, It's called The Secret Thoughts 
of an unlikely convert. She was a lesbian, a professor of women's studies and literature at Syracuse University in New York. And she was one in particular who, who tried to analyze the way that Christians, in one case, used the Bible as a text to navigate their lives and how she thought that produced all kinds of horrible outcomes because these Christians are obviously bad people and they're mainly what's wrong with the world. And so she began to interact with a Presbyterian minister. He's not EPC, but he's a Presbyterian minister uh, named Ken. And she asked him to come to the class and share with her students about how he reads the Bible and how, what place the text of the Bible has in his life and why it has that place. Now, Ken was a, quite an educated man. He's quite an intelligent man. And he did that, and he made friends with her. And then they began to invite her over to his house. Then he invited her to church. Now, this was a church that only sings the metrical psalms, only a cappella. So this is not a seeker-sensitive environment, okay? And, and he enfolded her and practiced hospitality and enfolded her into that community. And eventually, she became a Christian. But she talks in her autobiography about everything that happened after she made that decision because she was turning her back on everything. On her position as a professor, on her tenure, on her lover, on all of her friends, on a worldview that was heavily invested in this understanding of the world. And she walked away from that. She is now a Presbyterian minister's wife. And the story of her life is incredible. It's an incredible testament, first of all, to God's grace, but it's also an incredible testament to her courage. Because when she met Jesus, she knew, I cannot straddle two worlds, and I picked Jesus. And it cost her. Buddy, it cost her. I recommend the book highly. Well, we said briefly that the way you correct your faulty mental map of reality is to memorize and meditate on the passages of Scripture that will correct your map's specific errors, and then to engage constantly in brief but powerful prayers, to pray without ceasing, to meditate on the Scriptures and pray without ceasing. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, how do we do that? Well, your mind has an ongoing stream which is with you all day to one degree or another anyway. And to pray without ceasing and to meditate on the Word of God constantly is basically to take something you're already doing with your mind more or less all the time, and at best, what you're doing by default is of low value, and at worst, it's highly destructive. And what God wants you to do with the help of the Holy Spirit is to take that inner stream of thought and to redirect it, and to redirect it specifically in terms of brief, powerful prayers to Him and meditation on the Word of God. And you will find very quickly that God begins to work even in your most feeble efforts and to work in a noticeable and a powerful way. And I put up a couple of weeks ago a brief abstract about a guy named Frank Laubach who decided that he was just going to try as an experiment in 1930 as a missionary to the Philippines. He was going to try to remember God for one second out of every minute and just kind of train his mind. And within months, he reports these amazing outflows of the power and presence of God 
And he said, it's hard, but the more you do it and the more you keep at it, the easier it gets and the more it rewards you. Last little bit of review. I said two weeks ago, right at the end, that there were two other characteristics of the renewed mind. One is Hezekiah, it's a Bible word, or stillness. The other is nepsis, also a Bible word, or watchfulness. Hezekiah, stillness, nepsis, watchfulness. In other words, we want to have quiet and still minds that are basically orderly and not chaotic. Satan loves a chaotic mind. Satan loves to send things at you, at your senses that will encourage a chaotic mind. And if your mind is not chaotic, then you can keep an eye on what's going on. If you've got an ordered mind, you know what's happening inside of your mind. What's coming into your mind from the outside or what's bubbling up from within you that's undesirable and unhelpful. Well, we also need stillness and watchfulness because we are more or less constantly under assault. Our enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil. And the weapons that our enemies use, according to 2 Corinthians 10.5, are spiritually powerful ideas that are projected towards our minds. And in Greek, those ideas are called logismoi in the plural or logismos in the singular. Once again, a Bible word. Now, these powerful ideas have the ability to lodge in our minds, to lodge in our hearts, and to take over our lives if we let them. They can reorient our whole selves around their content, and they can become obsessions, and they can rule and even ruin our lives. Now, it's not always a bad thing that a that a logismos comes in and takes over, but because not all logismoi are evil. Some come from God, and when you get your mental map of reality corrected in a certain area, for instance, and it changes your thinking, which changes your behavior, that changes your character, which changes your life, that's a good thing, and we want that. And actually, one of my main tasks, and I realized this very early on, although I didn't have these words to put to it, but one of my main tasks as a pastor is to constantly be lobbing God's good logismoi into your head, into your mind, into your heart, in the hope that one of them will take root and will grow into something good and strong and beautiful. So I can remember in 1997 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, when I was at Bethel Seminary saying, my job as a pastor is to say, you think the world is this way, but God says it's this way. And to show that difference and say, try this one. Try the God way. I think you'll find it better. Now, the bad logismoi are assaulting us constantly. And often they sneak in and they establish a beachhead and they start sprouting roots and runners before we even realize what is going on. But if you, if you, if you play with this for a little while, you'll notice that some logiz logismoi will enter into your mind from one side and just pass right through to the other side without really impacting you at all. So for instance, for me personally, if I was at the grocery store or something and I found a wallet on the ground and that wallet had several hundred dollars worth of cash in it, the logismoi, the thought, 
would probably come into my head that I could take that cash and put it in my pocket and go on with my life. But that thought would also leave my head almost as quickly. Because stealing doesn't appeal to me. As a matter of fact, I consider people who steal to be a low-class and contemptible uh, bit of humanity. I, I don't like being stolen from. I've had things stolen from me. I've had my house robbed and burned down, and, and people not give me my stuff back even though they admitted to robbing and burning down my house. And so I think of people who steal as scum, and I do not want to be like them. They're lowlifes, and I think they could profit from a good sound beating in an alley somewhere most of the time. But if someone had done me wrong and had hurt me or damaged me, all, and, and then all of a sudden the opportunity came where I could really screw them over hard and get revenge, well, now that would be very, very hard for me to resist. So why is it that the stealing goes in one ear and out the other, but the revenge goes in one ear and sticks there? The logismos that says, keep that money won't stick in me very easily, and it has less chance of altering my behavior. The logismos that, sa the logismos that says, take your revenge and do it with glee, wants to stick in me and has a much higher chance of altering my behavior. Why is there a difference? And this is where we get to what we're talking about today. Why is revenge sticky in me and stealing just passes right through with no effect? And the answer is because of the egotistical passions that arise within me. The egotistical passions that arise within me. The logismoi stick in areas where I have passions. Egotistical passions. And that's the next topic that I want to introduce to you. The egotistical passions. And we're only going to do just a relatively brief introduction today. The egotistical passions are strong, disordered, self-oriented desires that arise from within us. And when I say disordered, I mean they are evil. They might have some kind of moderate good place in our lives, but they've been taken out of their proper place, they've assumed an importance they shouldn't have, or they might just be flat out evil. Now the word passion and the word passive have the same root, and that tells us something important about the passions. A passion is something that moves you that you submit to and are carried along by it. It has its own energy and momentum. You go where it wants you to go. And most of the time, we really enjoy the sensation of being moved. Now this is a disastrous state of affairs, but it's also ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, it, it, and in our culture, actually I was I was reading some historical surveys. In our culture, it's probably the worst it has ever been in any major culture in the history of the world. And that's because of some unique things that happened in the way our culture was formed. And uh, Dr. Carl Truman, for instance, when he was here a few weeks ago, talked about some of those issues, more than likely, because that's the subject of his book. As a matter of fact, one of the great tragedies of modern existence is that we have come to depend upon our passions to motivate us. 
and we nearly always act on our passions, and we think that it is only right that we act on our passions, and we cultivate them, therefore, and we seek them out as one of the main engines to run our lives. And our will, then, is left at the mercy of situations that will evoke passions in us. But passions, friends, are inherently unstable. They are egotistical in the sense that they only care about the self and what's moving the self and governing the self at any given moment. They resist all discipline or limitation by your mind, by your will, by the law of God, by the Holy Spirit, by any explicit commitments that you have made in the past. The passions don't care one bit about any of that. They want what they want. And we've gotten ourselves in a situation as a people where the only thing that we, the only way that we can think of that is the right way to live is to give our passions what they want. Now, sometimes you'll have passions compete in you, like I have a passion of cowardice and fear, but I also have a passion of lust. And so I might want to have an affair, but I'm also afraid I'm going to get caught. And so therefore, you know, one passion rules over the other. But that's not the same thing as being the kind of person who can just be trusted not to ever have an affair. And so you have these passions and they're at war within you and they're at war with everybody else because everybody else has passions and they're looking out for number one too. And a person who is in the grip of their passions will walk away from a marriage. They'll walk away from their children. They'll walk away from a supposed commitment to Christ. They'll walk away from a vocation they've been called to. They'll walk away from almost any commitment, really, in an attempt to follow that passion. And they will say things like, I'm just doing what I have to do. And the whole time, they are absolutely convinced that they're doing something good and noble, and that contentment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose for their lives will be found in pursuing these passions to their final destination. If you, there was a book written, I don't know how old it is now, Eat, Pray, Love. You remember that when that one came out? What was that about? Basically a woman forsaking all of her commitments and following her passions all around the world to do whatever she wanted. And everybody, Oprah was like, this is so wonderful. This is a blueprint for our new lives. It was horrible. It was horrible. And then she tried to write another one and, and it was even worse. And I think she's gone away now, thank goodness. But a person in the grip of their passions will do horrible, horrible things. They will end up in hell. Passions and following the passions, the egotistical passions, always ends in tears. It always ends in hell every time. And it creates huge damage to everyone around them. Everyone. It is enormously destructive those who follow their passions. And the Bible tells us very, very clearly what we are to do with our egotistical passions. So for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Now I'm going to get a test here of how quick I can flip. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. What does it say? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are we supposed to do with them? Abstain from them. Well, how about um, Titus 2, 11 and 12? 
Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, how about another one? How about Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 24? Galatians 5, 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified. Last one. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what are you to do with your passions? You are not to negotiate with them. You are not to accommodate them. You are not to make a place for them and legitimize them in yourself or in others, and especially others that you have responsibility for. You are not to encourage others to give in to them or to obey them. You are, according to the Scriptures, to separate yourself from them, and then you are to crucify them, to destroy them so thoroughly that they simply cease to be as an active part of your life. The passions, the egotistical passions, have no legitimate place in the child of God. You can and should simply put them to death by the Spirit. Now, the, the Greek term for putting these passions to death is uh, to, or the, it's used to describe the state of having had your passions being put to death, rather, is ah. Patheia, without the passions. You want to live a life of apatheia. It's where we get our English word apathy, but it doesn't have the same connotation in Greek. Apathy in English is negative, but apatheia is positive, without the passions. Now, if you want the church to immediately look different than the world, just get a small but significant portion of the church to put their egotistical passions to death and to run their lives on another basis, and you will see an amazing difference because the whole world is governed by its sinful passions. And in our, I mean, at least like, I, like I can remember when I was in, in college, I had a friend, I, I love uh, foreign students. I just love hanging out with people from other countries. When I was a kid, my dad worked in an international laboratory, and he was always bringing people home. And so when I was young, I had friends from Holland and Japan and Taiwan and Israel and just South Africa. It was just a great way to grow up. And so I've always been interested in people who are from another country. And I had, uh, I had a friend, in the, uh, he worked in the cafeteria, and I was a supervisor in the cafeteria, and his name was Anasul Khan, K-H-A-N. And he was from Bangladesh. And, uh, and I liked this guy. He was a Muslim. He was, a, he was an engineering student. His dad was a professor at the university in Bangladesh, and he was going to get his PhD and go back and be a professor. And it was, uh, it was Saturday morning, and getting everybody to show up for breakfast to work on Saturday morning in a college dorm cafeteria is a challenge, but not Anasul. 
and we were all meeting together and, and getting ready for the, the rush of students to come in and uh, we're drinking coffee and we were joking around about what we did on Friday night and, and we said something about, you know, perversity and sexual perversity and all these other kinds of things and joked, said, Anisil, what, what did, you know, is that what you want to do? And he looked at me as only a South Asian man can. And this look of dignity came upon his face. And he said, no, I can control myself. And I was rebuked by that. If a Muslim understands that he needs to discipline his passions and not let them rule his life, and he doesn't have the Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't have Jesus in his heart, how much more ought I to be able to live that way? I will never for the rest of my life forget it. No, I can control myself. Can you say that? You should. Child of God, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you should. Well, what are the egotistical passions? In many ways, there, there are many ways that we could list them or describe them. There are longer lists and shorter lists. But in ancient Christianity, as they meditated on these things, and they meditated on the specific sins that they were tempted to, they kind of sorted them, and they, they tended to group all of them, all of the various sins that might afflict us, under eight different headings. And so let's just describe the first four of them briefly, and then we'll be done today. The first one is gluttony. Gluttony. And gluttony is actually a form of idolatry, described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.19, when he says of a certain group of people, their God is their belly. And belly doesn't just mean appetite for food, it means any natural appetite. To be a glutton is to take a good thing which God created for some innocent use or beneficial use and to begin to partake of it in an excessive, uncontrollable, or unnecessary way as a bodily indulgence. And this can be food, it can be drink, it can be drugs, you can be a glutton for experiences. So, for instance, people who are prone to dangerous and thrill-seeking behaviors are gluttons. You may only drink one cup of coffee a day or eat one steak a month, but if you insist that it must be the finest coffee or the finest steak or your discriminating palate somehow is not satisfied, it doesn't matter how much coffee you drink, you're a glutton. Now, I say that as a complete coffee snob, among other things. I am a recovering glutton. And obviously, right? Sorry, but it's true. And the Lord has been pressing me in this area and getting me to see these things not as a psychological issue or as a body chemistry issue or, you know, it's a sin. It's a sin to take more than you need. It's a sin to take things given for one purpose and to use them for another to pleasure your body. I am a recovering glutton. Second one, 
lust. Lust. Now, in the Bible, the word lust is used two different ways. It can, it can be used to talk about sexual lust, but it can also be used to talk about, in general, strong, inappropriate desires for other things. So, for instance, a lust for power. For our purposes today, we're going to leave it at the sexual. God gave sex as a gift for a man and a woman who are united together in the bonds of marriage. And he gave it for three basic purposes. He gave it, number one, to satisfy a normal bodily desire. Number two, he gave it to bind two people closer together in an emotional bond. And number three, he gave it for the begetting of children. Any use of sexuality apart from that good situation is a sexual sin that grows out of lust, period. Lust turns the other person from a person into a thing, a thing which is serving my needs and interests, a thing which I will exploit if I want to. And... um, the, the thing might be a nice thing that I like very much. I might even be willing to do nice things for the thing because I'm the kind of person who takes care of my things. But that other person in a relationship of lust is not a person. They're a thing. And most of what goes under the name of love these days is really just lust. Love is not love. Lust is lust. Thirdly, greed or avarice. It's not a bad thing to have money or possessions. It is not a bad thing to have lots of money or lots of possessions, but it is always a dangerous state of affairs, spiritually speaking, because in a fallen world, money and the things money can buy are the most credible uh, uh, alternative to a life of dependence upon God. So in other words, if I have money, I don't need to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness in order to deal with the problem of what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Because if I have money, I know the answer to that question. And the answer is, whatever the heck I want. And I can leave God out of the equation altogether. And that is the way many Christians live. A Christian who lives in that situation weakens himself because the wheelchair of money causes the legs of faith to weaken and to atrophy from disuse. And that's why so many of us are afraid of being without money, even if we have Jesus. And so out of that then, greed can arise from fear. But greed can also arise from pride and from competitiveness. Our whole demonic world, socio-political, economic uh, system is built on greed, which in turn is built on pride and fear. And by the by, it may be about to crumble underneath us. We'll see. I've been waiting for that for about 25 years now, and it hasn't happened yet. The fourth one and the last one we're going to deal with today is probably a new word for most of you. The word is acedia, and acedia literally means without appropriate concern or care. These are the sins of laziness. These are the sins of sloth. 
This is the person who never does today what can be put off till tomorrow, and when tomorrow arrives, he suddenly finds that it can be put off till the next tomorrow, and the next one, and the next one, until either it's a crisis situation or the thing just gets disintegrates, and then he doesn't need to pay attention to it anymore, and it doesn't matter how much he's lost in that respect, he's happy that he doesn't have to exert the energy to take care of things. This is the person who doesn't take care of their body because they've always got something better to do. This is the person who's always too tired to cook a healthy meal for him or herself, and so they'll order pizza six nights a week. This is the person who knows they ought to change the oil in their car every three to 6,000 miles, but never does. This is the person who does not take care of their house. This is the person who hits snooze three times and then says, oh, I don't have time to be with God this morning and spend time in prayer in the scriptures because I have to rush. This is the person who skips church because bed feels good and Sunday is my day, after all, not the Lord's day. Indeed, the most serious aspect of this sin involves the neglect of your own soul where God is concerned. The rich fool, for instance, who had this bumper crop of uh, of, of wheat or whatever it was and wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger and bigger barns and then go, okay, I've got everything I need laid up for years. And he says, I'm going to just say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. Take your ease. He was suffering from spiritual acedia. He was willing to maintain his farm. He obviously was willing to work it because he had a bumper crop, but he was not willing to maintain his soul. If you will go to a garage sale at 6 a.m. on Saturday, not to miss out on all the goodies, but you're too tired to go to church this week on Sunday, you have acedia. If you'll sit for two hours for a ball game or a movie, but complain about how long church lasts, you have acedia. When the proverb says, above all else, guard your heart, and you do not make your most concerted efforts for anything in your life to be guarding your heart, you are suffering from acedia. And acedia will always eventually lead to grumbling and to complaining, to cursing God's plans and God's ways out of resentment. It will lead to gossip and boredom and other abusive behavior towards other people. Acedia is at the root of your lack of effort and diligence, for instance, to train up your children in the way that they should go and teach them the ways of the Lord. Acedia sits idly by at church while 20% of the people do the work and the rest lumber by to consume and complain about the quality and quantity of what's on offer. If you won't fight besetting sins that you know you have, that's acedia. And you can have acedia in your body you can be intellectually lazy. You know those people that are like, oh, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe any of these things. And then you try and engage them with rational arguments, and they're like, oh, I don't want to work that hard. No, you're not a skeptic. You're lazy. If you were a skeptic, you would investigate, and you would find, and Jesus would show himself to you. But you're lazy. You can have it in your soul, your spirit. And they're often interconnected. You can have them in all three. The, the same sin can spread across spirit, body, and mind. And it's deadly. You, so you can have all three going at once. Acedia is another sin that I struggle with. Just being honest. 
So I'm, I don't know what the word is, acediac? Let's make a word, acediac. I am a recovering acediac as well. And because I'm a recovering acediac, I didn't come up with some happy ending to this. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, there's just a lot going on. But when these evil thoughts that are flung at us from the world and the devil and even from within us meet with these passions, it just creates this nuclear reaction inside of us for, for ill. And we don't want to be this way. And you've told us not to be this way. And you've told us what we need to do. We need to identify these things, target them, and execute them with extreme malice. We are to crucify them in the most brutal way possible so that they have no place in us. Let us not give uh, any of these sins, any of these passions a place in our own hearts, and let's not make places for them in the hearts of others. In Jesus' name, amen.